All right, well, like I stated, we are in Luke chapter 1. Hopefully you've made your way there in the Bible. And as we wrapped up Jonah last week, I finished quicker than I anticipated. And uh, so, left with a few weeks, what do we do? Well, I don't know about you, but I do love the whole Christmas idea. I love to consider the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, so often, each and every year, let's be honest, we get distracted by everything else that goes on in the world. Our obligations to family, you know, the the gift lists that we've committed ourselves to, and so forth, or just the commercialism of it all. Um, Let me ask you a question. You know, I I really respect uh, you here at this church. How many went out Black Friday shopping? This is a wise church. Okay, well, there's always one or two. You know, that you, you just pray for them. You just ask the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is understanding that Black Friday is of, the, of Satan. Um, you know, it's just like, I live in Schaumburg. And, and you know, I, I've come to the point after 25 years of living there that on Black Friday, you just close the shutters, you lock the doors, you cringe in the corner, get the dog so she's safe, and, and you just wait it out. Just waited out. One year uh, on a Black Friday, Dean and I were actually sleeping, and you know, they started all on godly hours now, you know, five in the morning, and now it's two in the afternoon the day before on Thanksgiving. But this particular year, at three o'clock in the morning, we were woken up by helicopters flying over our house. I mean, you heard them, like it was just like they were right there in our bedroom. And I, I got out to the window, and I'm like, oh my goodness, we're being invaded on Black Friday. It's like, um, and, and big spotlights coming down from the fellow, the, the um, front of the helicopters, you know, they're looking for people, and it's just like, what is going on? Well, I did what every other concerned citizen would do. I went back to bed. And uh, the next Sunday, uh, a young man who attended this church, who, who now moved to Ohio, uh was telling me he, he worked at the Best Buy there in, in uh, Schaumburg, and they had a little riot break out in front of the store, and the helicopters were going there to illuminate the area for the police uh, to come in and try to break it up. But this poor guy, who probably soaking wet weighed a buck 40, uh, was in charge of standing in front of the door to make sure nobody would break in. He said he was so glad that he was saved. I go, amen, brother. I couldn't believe it that that poor guy was left there, you know, trying to keep the people at bay, and yet there's a riot breaking out in front of the store. Yeah, that's a healthy holiday, isn't it? You know, Black Friday, just the title alone should scare you. So I was like, what can we do as a church family all the way up until Christmas to remind us that Jesus is the true reason for everything? Now, let me give you some, let's do some house cleaning first, academic house cleaning. Now, we understand, right, all of us understand that Jesus was not born in December. Do we know that? Okay. It's clear from the Bible that uh, he was born in the spring. That's the time that the shepherds were out there in the land and so forth. And this is a date that we have adopted later on in history and so forth. But if this is the date that the world wants to remember my Lord and Savior, so be it. 
But that being said, that the only true account for Christmas is given to us in the Bible. That's where we find the true account of Christmas given to us. And what I thought we would do is that we would read up in a countdown to Christmas all the events that took place prior to his birth and try to understand the significance of these events and why the writers of the Gospel of Luke are giving us this information. And I was hoping that this would keep us centered on Christ during this time of the year to remember that what we do remember is the Savior coming into the world at his first coming or his first advent. And I've chosen the Gospel of Luke for us this morning because of its significance. And as a result of its significance, I believe that Luke gives us an account that you and I as Gentile believers in Jesus should read and understand because this is what was important for us to know. For example, the backstory before coming to the actual event of his birth in chapter 2 of Luke's gospel. Why did Luke include the events that he wrote in the first 80 verses, 80 verses, one of the longest chapters in the New Testament, if not the in the New Testament, definitely in the New Testament, but in the entire Bible, 80 verses given to us of backstory before we come into the actual birth of Jesus there on that Christmas morning, the morning that he came into this world. Now, The reason I thought doing a countdown would be appropriate is because we have a young lady in this church who can tell you not only the day uh, until Christmas, but the hour and minute. And I am guaranteed that, you know, that on the day after Christmas on my Facebook page, there will be a post from her saying that there's 364 days until Christmas. And that's our beloved Haley. She always keeps us informed. She always lets me know, three days to Christmas, okay, maybe I should get serious about shopping now, and uh, so forth. But she counts down in the middle of the year. I remember one time it was 110 degrees, I opened my Facebook page, and there was, you know, 200 days until Christmas. I'm like, really? I'm sweltering because of the heat, you know. But this countdown to Christmas is we're going to take a countdown look at the events that took place that Luke records for us that we need to understand for ourselves to help us truly appreciate all that God did in that moment that the Savior was born. So let us begin as we turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And in each one of our times together on Sunday mornings, we're going to be once again reminded of a dynamic truth, you know. You know, everybody asks, well, how do you know that Christmas is right around the corner? Well, they're putting out Halloween decorations. We have rushed things so greatly that we don't even get a chance to enjoy one aspect or holiday. It's just being bulldozed into the next one so quickly. But Luke wants us to consider some things. Now, let's just stop here for a moment and ask ourselves some questions. Who is Luke? And why are we reading a gospel that he wrote 2,000 years ago to help us understand what Christmas means? Well, again, the day that's selected, December 25th, is the day in which we remember our Savior's birth into this world, where we believe as Christians God stepped out of heaven and was born there in a manger in Bethlehem in complete and utter humility to Mary, 
his mother and Joseph, his stepdad, because his father was God the Father. And we know that after that happened, there was good tidings were to all, and the shepherds came and worshipped him and so forth. But what happened up until that point? What transpired? What took place? Why was this so significant? That is why we turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning. And we begin in verse 1, if you'll look there with me. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This is a letter. The Gospel of Luke is a letter. Now, it's one volume out of a two-volume letter set. For Luke, the writer, also wrote the book of Acts. And he also wrote it to Theophilus. Uh, And who is Theophilus? Well, there are many who want to look at it from different perspectives because the name itself is a Greek or Jewish name. It can be found in either. And it means lover of God. Now, there are some who believe that this is a code name for a certain individual that he wanted to keep secret from uh, uh, the prying eyes of who might gather this letter because of the persecution that has arisen to hide the recipients of this letter. Others believe it's just an epitaph to state that this letter is written to all who love God. But I hold to the fact that he was a legitimate individual person and this was his name. I I believe that because of the title in which it is written prior to his name, Most Excellent Theophilus. This was a complete greeting, a proper literary greeting in that time, writing and addressing a letter to an individual specifically. I believe Luke is writing this letter to Theophilus. Well, who is Theophilus? Well, history tells us Theophilus was an individual who was a very wealthy man. And as a result of his wealth, he was able to carry in his personal staff, his personal um, servanthood, uh, a doctor. Now, doctors were different back than they are now. Most doctors were employed to a person, an individual, So wealthy people had the privilege of being able to consult doctors of that time where poorer people didn't have that access. And in this culture, specifically the Roman culture, Theophilus having a doctor in his own personal, uh, as one of his own personal servants, was a very common occurrence at that time. The reason I state that is because Luke is introduced as a doctor. Luke was a physician at that time. He was medically trained and he medically served not only Theophilus, but through the book of Acts, you will notice that he served the apostles also. It appears that Theophilus has given Luke the ability, by supporting him financially, of 
being a companion to Paul, Peter, and the others. And in the Gospel of Luke and into the book of Acts, you're going to notice that there are some moments in the book of Acts that Luke actually speaks of the fact that he was with them at that time. We were here at that time together, stating that Luke was with them. And so Luke, being a doctor, was an incredibly methodical thinking individual. And at this time, which is about 60 A.D., there were already numerous writings concerning Jesus. Some were from the apostles or the associates of the apostles, such as Matthew and Mark at this time. Some believed that the Gospel of Luke were simply reiterations of those two Gospels, and then a further document that is known in higher criticism simply as Q. Now, I state that because you will read that in many commentaries concerning the uh, reasoning for the material in which Luke selected for his particular Gospel to Theophilus. Now, I have a different position. I believe that Luke selected what he selected there are stories in Luke that are not in the other Gospels, such as the prodigal son, which is one of the most significant ones. But Luke writes from a Gentile perspective. Now, this might really surprise you. Luke was a Gentile. He is writing to a Gentile. In that culture, he would call him master, uh, or you know, we would say boss in our culture, uh, and so forth. And Luke apparently is witnessing to him. And this is what Luke is doing to show Theophilus that those things that he has already heard and already been taught can be validated. Luke is saying, I'm going to go back now for you and I'm going to look at everything that has been written. I'm going to research it myself. I'm going to compile a letter for you personally that's going to be orderly and it's going to include things that are important to the Gentile community that may not be as nearly as important to the Jewish community. Now the Jewish community, you can imagine, had all the history of Judaism within their mindset. They, when they read something, they were reading it from the perspective of a Jewish individual. But Luke is writing to people who are Gentiles who didn't have that background. So often he fills in the blank for us. He gives us information about Jesus that to a Jewish person would have seemed elementary. But to us, it's important because we would not have grown up with that knowledge. You know, growing up here in the suburbs of Chicago, I can't tell you for a moment of what it would be like to grow up in the uh, rural areas of India. You know, I couldn't tell you at all. You know, I would go to the rural India, you know, areas of India and say, hey, listen, you got a Starbucks around here? They'd look at me and go, Starbucks? You know, what? What are you talking about, man? We don't have that. We got a well. We got a pipe over there with some water. You want that? But you can understand that there's all of these things, background, that we as Gentiles don't carry with us, but we also have questions that the Jewish people would never have asked. And it appears that Luke here anticipates all of that. And he's writing this letter to someone he cares deeply about because of the length and the detail of the letter itself. And to follow up with the book of Acts saying, all right, now, in my first letter to you, I wrote about everything that Jesus did up until the grave. 
Now I'm going to write to you about everything that Jesus has done after he ascended into heaven and what happened through the apostles after he ascended into heaven. That's the book of Acts. So I chose Luke because I thought Luke would be very appropriate for you and I this morning. And I thought it very interesting that he uses a very, very interesting word for one who would have a scientific background in the first four verses. He is actually committing to Theophilus to bring about a certainty in the mind of Theophilus concerning those things in which he's been taught. If you talk to a scientist, you will realize very quickly that certainty is a very, very uh, important but difficult for word for them to commit to. Certainty must be developed beyond a shadow of a, do- a doubt and be able to be verified or in a scientific aspect repeated through a scientific experiment that parallels the first experiment. But he uses this word here in the Greek very specifically. Now, if we were to tell someone in our culture today that we are certain about our Christianity, we would be heavily challenged for that. How can you be certain about such a thing that happened 2,000 years ago? That's a good point. But let me ask you a question. The things that Theophilus heard and were taught didn't happen 2,000 years ago. From Theophilus' point of view, they happened 30 years ago. So Luke is stating, those things that you have heard and been taught, I am now bringing certainty to them, specifically when it comes to the miracles of Jesus Christ. Jesus' ability to bend the natural supernaturally to conform to his sovereignty. A miracle. Some things that are stated and challenged today. I cannot believe how many Christians I am running into who don't believe in miracles. And they simply believe it's because science uh, uh, doesn't allow for miracles and therefore these are just uh, superstitions or folklore or oral traditions that were passed on that simply cannot be true. Well, the only reason they can't be true is because you've put science over God. See, I believe my God can do anything he desires to do. We read about him creating a fish to swallow a guy. Really? Was that, was that really that hard for God who created all things? No, it's not hard for him at all. He could have created the Starship Enterprise at that time. I'd be perfectly acceptable with that. He can do anything he wants to do. But he's allowing Theophilus certainty in the things in which he has heard. He is going to go back and he is going to compile one of the best of the four Gospels. And he's doing it for this one person. His affection, his love, his his desire to see Theophilus come to saving faith in Jesus Christ was worth the effort in which he was putting into this letter. Never knowing and understanding that God was going to use this as one of the four Gospels of the New Testament. So as we look at this together, let us understand that God is saying that we can be certain of the things that the Bible has stated concerning Jesus Christ. And though we are 2,000 years removed, notice what he says here. 
He says that just as these narratives have been compiled, verse 1, and have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, he's stating through writings and through oral traditions of eyewitnesses themselves, we have the information that we have. Now I'm going to go back and I'm going to verify it all for you, Theophilus. That is what his intention is. This is what brought me to bring out the book of Luke this morning for us. That we may come to that same degree of certainty. Now, though he says nothing negative about those things that have been written, or those things that have been communicated in oral tradition, or possibly even handed down through songs that were written, perhaps there was a fragment fragmentation amongst all of these works that didn't compile a cohesive thought from beginning to end that would satisfy Luke's scientific mind. Or, since they were from eyewitnesses and therefore most likely being passed on through oral tradition, they needed to be written down themselves. And maybe Luke wanted to do that within his writing. Maybe Luke felt that there was a danger of these things being lost and they needed to be recorded for the future. Or that each of these other accounts was incomplete, standing in and of themselves alone, so one account and a collection of all was needed. And so Luke now is going to bring us to the birth of Jesus Christ with the intention of allowing us certainty as we read each and every passage until we come to that point. And so as Theophilus is being blessed by these words, so you and I are being blessed this morning by them, by the, by the hand of Luke himself, traveled with John, Peter, James, and Paul. A Gentile doctor desiring now to bring us into a point of certainty concerning those things that you have been taught. We begin here in verse 5, in the days of Herod. Herod was a king at that time in Judea, there in Jerusalem. Herod was not a Jewish person. He was a Gentile appointed by the Romans to oversee the city of Jerusalem, and the Jewish nation. He was hated by the Jewish people. Herod was supposed to have had ten wives and killed one of them, and therefore took his brother's wife as his tenth. And so by Luke doing this, he is giving us a background to consider those things that are written in the foreground. By stating this, it would be like me telling you about the 1940s and starting with this. In 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. That gave you now a background to the foreground material in which I'm now going to share with you. It shows that our nation was now coming to a position of war within the world. By stating that Herod was king, there was certain unrest in Jerusalem. There was an uneasiness because of the Roman occupation, Herod's rule, and the injustice that was coming about through both. The people felt that they had no voice any longer, and that revolt was the only choice in which was left to them. 
On top of all of that, it is so important for me to remind you of this next fact. For the next couple of seconds, I would like to ask us all to be silent. And if we're not, we're going to start over again until we get it right. On your marks, get set, go. Now, the reason I did this is because God had been silent for 400 years. The people were experiencing all of these things, and God had been silent for 400 years. Not a prophet, not a priest, no one sent to the people to proclaim uh, God's word to them and to encourage them during their times of great distress. It had been a time of war through the Maccabean revolt. The Jewish people were tired. The Jewish people were losing their wealth through high, incredibly high taxation, which Herod would then use to build further structures onto himself to glorify himself. This is what is meant by Luke using in the days of Herod, in this time, He wants his reader to consider the history, everything that's taking place at that moment. The king of Judea. Now there was a priest named Zechariah, one of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now during this incredibly difficult time in Israel's history, Luke is now bringing to our attention that there's this priest named Zechariah. He is of the division of Abijah, and there are 24 divisions of priests at this time. There are a total of about 18,000 different priests at this time working in the temple. And now our focus is being drawn from the backdrop to the foreground. Now we're asked to consider these two individual people in front of the background that has been set. Now Elizabeth, his wife, was one of the daughter, uh, from descendants of the daughter of Aaron, Moses' brother. So this would be considered an individual of high pedigree. Of course, her descendants were historic in and of themselves. And her name was Elizabeth. Now his name means uh, the promises of God. Her name means by the oath of God. And remember that because this is something that Jewish people and Gentiles would look for in their reading of a letter. Names meant something in that culture. And so as he is giving them this information, he is responding and declaring to them that these individuals have been put here at this particular time, at this particular place for the events that are now going to follow. Her name being Elizabeth, verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Meaning even at that difficult time when everything seemed to be falling apart for the nation, these two were still able to walk uprightly before their God. However, though, verse 7 brings us to to the problem. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Under the Old Testament covenant that Moses records for us in Deuteronomy 28, 
barrenness was considered a curse upon a woman. Now, Luke makes it abundantly clear that they were both righteous before God and they were both blameless for, before God. So nothing has been committed that would bring about this curse that God promised under the old covenant would occur. And yet they were still without children. Now advanced in years, this had been a blemish, a reproach upon them both. And it was a great position of difficulty because Zechariah now would not have any descendants after his personal death. And in the midst of everything going on, all the corruption in Herod and the occupation of Rome and the, uh, the, the belittling and bewilderness of the nation itself, uh, Israel and so forth, God directs his attention to these two. And notice what happens next. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, his division was on duty. 24 divisions, twice a year they would go on duty. Uh, and that his division is now called up. It's his division's turn to serve. And each of them were given specific tasks within the temple. Those tasks were selected by casting lots, rolling lots and casting them. And how they fell would determine who would do what within the temple. And so he casts his lots. And according to the customs of the priesthood, he was chosen by those lots to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was a highlight of a priest's career. Due to the sheer number of priests that were there at that time, and then to have only two opportunities per year to serve within the temple, to be called upon to light the incense before the altar of incense in the inner room of the temple was a luxury. It was a once-in-a-lifetime event for this individual. It would have been a great honor, a great privilege to do so. And as a result, he takes his responsibilities very seriously. Notice here, in verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, incense were burned at the altar of incense in the morning at sunrise and in the evening at sunset. Most likely this was at sunset. For in the morning, what would happen would, the priests would go in before the, uh, te- in the inner room of the temple, and the temple's inner room was divided by a large curtain, and behind that large curtain was the Holy of Holies. But in front of it was the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the lampstand. And so the priest would go to the altar there before the temple curtain, and he would light incense, which would represent the prayers of the people before God. And it appears that here, in his case, he is doing it in the evening time, because in the morning, when the priest went in, he would light the incense, and then Silver trumpets would be shouted throughout the courtyards of the temple and all the Levitical priests would come forward to pray during the day there in the temple. Now at sunset, after the priest would light the incense one more time, he would come out and then uh, pronounce a blessing upon the people, which we're going to discover Zechariah is not going to be able to do. 
And so as we come now with him, as the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now in verse 11, scholars have pulled out a fact that is very interesting. The only way for an individual to know that the angel was standing on the right side of the altar of incense is if he were to ask Zechariah personally. The only one who saw it was Zechariah. And they believe, uh, in fact, if you're interested, one of the best books written on the Gospel of Luke is by a man named Dr. Daryl Bach. Um, he, he writes on this quite extensively. That most, uh, most certainly, Luke spent time with Zechariah to get this information for this letter. It's an eyewitness account in Zechariah. I'm sorry, Luke is recording this on behalf of Theophilus. So as he walks in now to the temple, he sees an angel standing at the right hand of the temple. I'm sorry, of, of the altar of incense. Now, would that get your attention right there? Yeah. You know, hit the floor, right? I mean, we're going down. That's what happened in Revelation when they saw the angels approach. You know, John kept falling before the angel. Oh my gosh, this is something significant. And as a result, look at what happens next. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been has been heard. I'm sorry, your prayer, singular, has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, there's a grammatical issue here that I must bring to your attention because it, it appears that the prayer, the singular prayer in which Zechariah offered was for a son. Your prayer has been answered, and then it goes on to say in English, um, uh, your prayer has been answered, and you will, uh, your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son. But notice that in your English translation, there's probably a comma there. And the reason for that is because it is actually two different thoughts in the Greek. Your prayer has been heard of God. And Elizabeth is going to give you a son. I believe that Zechariah wasn't praying. He wasn't praying for a son. I believe he was praying for Messiah. I believe he was praying for Jesus to come. I believe that's what was on his heart. And as he was praying before the Lord, Gabriel says to him, and I know it's Gabriel, and I'll show you that in just a minute why, Gabriel says to him, your prayer has been heard. And Elizabeth's going to give you a son. Whoa, what is going on here? For your prayer has been heard, comma, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. One of the most difficult 
parts of having a child is naming the child, right? Everybody has their opinions. Uh, and today, now, there are many who are coming up with very creative names, taking two or three different names and combining them all into one and naming their child and so forth. Here, Gabriel says, listen, we've taken all the work out of it for you. His name is going to be John. The reason his name is John is because it means God is giving. God is gracious. God is about to give them something that the people do not deserve. God is about to provide for them something that they absolutely do not warrant in any kind of merited favor whatsoever. God is going to do something extraordinary. For this is the first time that God has spoken in 400 years. And it is the angel Gabriel to Zechariah in the temple specifically. Now notice what happens next. In verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He's already describing the ministry in which John's going to have. Great amongst the Lord means important and valuable to the Lord. He is going to be one who's going to be set apart for the Lord. When he speaks of alcohol here and the separation from it, he is referring to the Nazarite vow that is found in Numbers chapter 6. The Nazarite vow is a vow that would separate an individual solely on to the purposes of God. It would cause him to be sacred. When instruments were used in the temple, they were prepared in a certain way, they were washed in a certain way, that caused them to be separate. And the word sacred is used for those instruments. The separation of this person was also found in the Nazarene vow. And the, he himself would be a Nazarite from the time he, st- he begins his ministry to the time in which he ends. That he'll be completely separated unto God for the purposes of God. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible is clear that an individual can be filled with the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is clear on that, that we are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we first become a believer in Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee for our salvation. But we notice in the book of Acts that there are times where the person cannot just uh, just doesn't receive the Spirit in that regard, but then the Spirit is poured upon them overflowing for the purposes of serving God and fulfilling the ministry God has called him to. In the Old Testament, it was called anointing. and In the New Testament, the word filling for this purpose. And this is why I believe a believer in Jesus Christ can be filled with the Spirit at numerous different times without their, within their Christian life for the purposes of God. And as a result, John here is from the very beginning filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Extraordinary. That hasn't occurred anywhere else in the Scripture. And he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. There's that Nazarene vow. 
and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord, I'm sorry, a people prepared. He is quoting the book of Malachi, and this is where Malachi ends. And Luke is giving us this particular aspect of this account to tell us that we can take this portion and the end of Malachi and put it together. For the Old Testament tells us very clearly that one would precede the coming Messiah. He would be a voice crying out into the wilderness. Malachi 3.1. He would be one that was draw the nation of Israel back to God. Malachi 4.5 and 6. But even in the book of Isaiah, we read about this individual. Isaiah 41 through 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When a king approached a city, he would always be preceded by a herald. And sometimes that herald would precede him by hours, sometimes by days. Preparing the people to receive the king in who is coming. John the Baptist was that herald. He was the individual crying out to the people of Israel, Messiah is coming. He is coming and it is time now to repent and turn your hearts back to the God of Israel calling people back to their God. And as a result, he turned the people and prepared them to receive their Messiah. And we see here that now Luke is bringing us to the understanding that where Malachi left off, he is now picking up. In verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, Oh, thank you, thank you. I totally believe it. Every word you said, I totally believe it. Is that what he said? Aren't humans great? Look at this. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this to be true? That's what he's saying here. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. All right, listen to me here, folks. Each and every time we read a promise from God, we can accept that promise by faith or we can meet that promise by all the problems that we see that may hinder that promise from coming to fruition. Think about what I'm saying here. Every time God promises us something, we can believe it by faith and receive it. Or we can challenge it with every possible problem that we see that could arise that would hinder that promise from being fulfilled. The angels just said, all of these things are going to happen. I'm not sure. I'm not positive about this because listen, now, if you don't know this, 
I know you're an angel. I know you're around God, but you may not know this, that I'm old. Okay? And uh, my wife, she's advanced. Now, in the Greek, the word phrasing is for advanced is actually one who is bent over. It is a term used for one who would be suffering from osteoporosis, bent over in old age. She's bent over in old age, God. Don't you understand, angel man, that this, I, no, this ain't happening. This is not happening. How shall I know this? <laughs> I love the angel here. Uh, well, uh, the angel answered him and said, listen, I don't want to shock you or anything, but I'm Gabriel. This was a name the Jewish people did not mess with. Gabriel is one of two angels mentioned in the hierarchy of angels within the Old Testament. There are three angels named in the Bible. There is Gabriel, Michael, and Satan. Gabriel seems to have the commission by God the Father to oversee the coming of the Messiah. It is Gabriel who works here not only with uh, Zechariah, but works here with Mary, works here with Joseph, and so forth, to bring about the coming of Messiah. Michael, he seems to be over the nation of Israel, if you go back to the book of Daniel. By him declaring that he is Gabriel, he then st- the Jewish person would have gotten this right away, but notice what Luke does here, for our, na- for our sake... He says this, I am Gabriel. That would have been enough for the Jewish mind. But he adds here, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold, now you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that this thing has taken place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Luke adds this, I stand in the presence of the Lord. That wouldn't have been necessary for a Jewish person. They would have gathered that by him simply being Gabriel. I've heard it from God directly. These things will take place. And since you were unwilling to believe it, you shall be mute until that time. There are some believe that he was deaf also based on Luke 162. You can look at that for yourself. But he couldn't speak of it. Now, he just heard the Lord speak for the first time in 400 years. He's about to have a baby in his old age, and now he can't tell anybody about it. God has this way of dealing with people, doesn't he? And as a result, Zechariah, now silent, when he came out in verse 22 verse 21, I should say, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service has ended, he went to his home. For the rest of the week, he had to continue to perform the duties in which he had scheduled for him. 
He then is now able to go at the end of the week to his home where Elizabeth is undoubtedly waiting for him. Now, what were the people waiting to hear from him? I believe that they were waiting to hear from him the closing blessing of the day. The blessing that would be pronounced at the end of each and every day over the people. And it is found in Numbers six twenty-four through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But they didn't hear it because he was silent. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. It wasn't a supernatural conception such as Jesus Christ where the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. This was in conjunction with their marital relationships through through intimacy. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in these days when he looked on me to take away my reproach amongst the people. In each one of our times together as we count down to Christmas, we remo- I want to remind ourselves of a truth about God that is so transcendent, that is so impactful, that it'll continuously change your life if you allow yourself to simply believe it. And when I read this account, it is impossible for me not to remember Abraham's wife, Sarah. When Sarah was unable to conceive a child and was then in her old age, and Jesus said, a year from now, you're going to come, I'm going to come back and you're going to have a child and you're going to have a son and his name's going to be Isaac. When she heard that, she laughed from the other room. But then she concluded, is there anything too hard for the Lord? If you and I will simply remember that as believers in Jesus Christ, I believe that we will be much more um, successful in navigating the climate in which we live today. If we can remember that each and every time we are faced with circumstances that are above ourselves, that nothing is too hard for the Lord, it brings everything back into perspective, doesn't it? We look at this and we would be pretty, you know, let's be honest, we're all pretty like, Zachariah, how come you didn't get it? Why didn't you just believe? Do you think we would be any different in that circumstance? I mean, first of all, you just have to get me off the floor just from seeing an angel. (laughs) The pastor is down. The pastor is down. Get the ushers quickly. Just from seeing the angel. But Zechariah was once again confronted by his personal limitations and the supernatural ability of God, and he chose to limit God to his personal limited abilities. And when we do this, we put God in that exact same box, and that always leads to unbelief every single time. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Write that in your Bible. Genesis 18, 14. In fact, Jeremiah repeated it in Jeremiah 32, 17. 
Ah, the Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you.